32 counties, 32 questions. My name is Una and this is United Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and see where in the world it brings us. Quick word about how you can support this podcast, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. I'm sure you're sick of us talking about it, but if you support us, we won't talk about it anymore. So give us about three bucks a month and you will be greeted with love and eventual silence from the plug. This week's county is Derry. This week's question, Lyra McKee was murdered in Derry. What happened next? If you had told me that I'd be sitting in a gay bar with one of Ian Paisley's disciples drinking cocktails and watching a drag show, I'd have told you you were mad. So, what can you do if you thought you were here to listen passively to me rant on? No, I've got a job for you all. If any of you are uncomfortable with the thought of someone like me, please come up to me after this event and talk to me. I won't bite your head off. I won't call you a homophobe. We'll just have a conversation and I'll show you that I'm human, just like you. You've just heard the voice of Lyra McKee, a 29-year-old journalist who was murdered during rioting in the Craigan area of Derry on the night of April 18th this year. It was a death that shook the country and the world. But what happened next? Lyra was more than a bright spark. Her journalism was just outstanding. And everyone who knew her talks about her passion, her intelligence, her good humour and her dedication to her profession. A book that she wrote, Angels with Blue Faces, a five-year investigation into the IRA killing of um, MP Robert Bradford was published this summer. So in so many ways, her legacy lives on. But what happened after she died? That's what we're going to be talking about on this episode of United Ireland, Derry. So some Derry facts. When people think of Derry, they often think of the bog side, Bloody Sunday in 1972, of the dramatic murals that are still on gables around the city, of Derry's deep history that permeates the history of the Troubles and the activism that emerged from that, in particular the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And politically and socially, it really is a fascinating place. It's the only remaining intact walled city in Ireland. The county has a population of around a quarter of a million people. It also uh, is home to two Nobel winners, Seamus Heaney and John Hume. And it's a really fertile ground for music. I mean, Brown O'Gallagher, Soak, Neil Hannon, Paul McLean and Fergal Sharkey from Undertones, Phil Coulter, Nadine Coyle, and yes, Dana are all from Derry. In 1902, there were 38 shirt factories in Derry. Uh, with nearly 100,000 workers in the industry, and that included folks in Donegal and Tyrone. And the fact that nearly 90% of these workers were female created a sort of gendered employment landscape in Derry's history, where men often struggled to find work and women were the breadwinners, particularly in the mid-20th century. And this curiosity of the social fabric of the place may go some way to explain how Derry is a place of strong women and feminist discourse. When I think of Derry, my go-to is Nell McCafferty, as well as other folks such as Eamon McCann and one of our guests today who we'll be chatting with very shortly. Our county rep for Derry this week is a writer I just love, not least because of his brilliant columns in The Observer, but also his epic Twitter threads, including the unbeatable tale of having to turn up to work to serve Mary McAleese drinks while high on ketamine. Here's Seamus O'Reilly rapping Derry. I love that anybody in Derry will talk to you at any time. 
even when this would seem to be the last thing in the world you would want to a place. Like rain or decent butter, you only have to live a few short months in a place that doesn't have constant chat to never take it for granted again. I love the view from top of the hill, where the soft rise above the buildings, bridges and Brandywell lays out the twinkling lights of a city that's alive and loving and real. I love the fact that it's called top of the hill because it's the top of a hill and what else would you call it? I love the view from the walls and the steady clink of buckfast bottles as you peer over the ramparts that swoop down into the bog and guide the eye past a history told on the painted walls of flats long gone. I like the casual distrust of authority that's really defiance among a population who only got the right to vote in the mid-70s and can sometimes be misinterpreted as being suspicious. Like the time I rang around looking for a book and asked, is this the central library? And the librarians replied, who's asking? I love our complete inability to gauge the size of things and our insistence in therefore cataloguing all nouns depending on whether or not they could conceivably be labelled as we. Not just the wee woman in the wee shop and her wee sandwich and the wee tea, but one imagines a wee bodybuilder on a wee aircraft carrier just back from climbing a wee mountain. I love the fact Dairy Girls swung for the fences and captured every heart-lifting, heartbreaking, stupid, silly and fine thing about the place. And rather than take offence at its gentle caricature, we took it in with open arms and painted it too on a wall. I love the fact we have the best local radio on earth and Steve McCauley and Radio Foil is there to shepherd a whole generation of incredible music to a whole new generation of musicians. Artists like the cyclist Ryan Vale, Elmo Orchestra, Charm, Forno, Strength, Hyphen, Porphyry, the fully automatic model Joe Hagen, Charlie Shop Vinyl, The Barbiturates, Gas Hands, Reverb, Berry and more. I love the accent, soft and purring but twisty and sharp. The kind of accent that could bend chocolate or rust a bike. The kind of accent I lost a bit when I moved away but which returns within minutes of being picked up by a taxi man who refuses to believe I ever had it in the first place. I love a city where it was taken for granted that you could be whatever you wanted. And I hate that the proviso so often hinged on so long as you left. I hate that so many of us did have to leave. And that the conditions necessary for us to return are dependent on the largesse of people who simply don't care about the people who remain. I hate the people who prey on that desolation and want to turn anger into the violent carnage that once gave their own wasted lives a meaning that's long since gone. But I love the city that hates those people and wastes no time in telling them to crawl back under the rock from whence they came. Susan McKay is one of the country's finest journalists, without question. One of the key ingredients in her work, in my opinion, is empathy, which is unsurprising when you know about her journey she took before becoming a journalist as one of the founders of the Belfast Rape Crisis Centre and also working in Sligo uh, with unemployed young people. She was the brilliant northern editor of the Sunday Tribune, where I started out as a reporter and remains an excellent writer for various outlets, including The Guardian, The Irish Times and The New York Times. She's written a bunch of books. She's made documentaries and she always provides a sense of authority and steely calm on the many occasions where she is speaking in a public forum. She is also a dairy girl and it's a pleasure to have her in the studio. Welcome, Susan. Thanks, Suna. What was life like you? uh, What was life for like you growing up in Derry? How would you characterise the energy of the place as, as a kid or a teenager? It was a completely mad place to grow up. Um, I kind of came out of childhood and straight into the era of the Troubles. So um, it was very scary. Um, Derry was being blown up. Derry was full of shootouts. Derry had Bloody Sunday. You know, it was a very dangerous and scary place, but it was also just completely what we thought was normal because it was normal. It was where you went to school. It was where you had your friends. It was where you fancied people. It was where you wanted to go out at night. And 
you just adapt to that. But it leaves you uh, feeling a bit unhinged, I think, when you come out the far side of growing up in such a place. You know, you, you take... It was only when I saw my own daughters growing up in a more normal kind of stable place that I realised quite how manic it had been but of course it had its good side you know, uh, Derry was a very, always has been a very creative place, you know I came of age with the undertones and there was the excitement of, of getting to go and hear horse flips in Borderland in their first incarnation when they could still bend their knees and things <laughs> and uh, it was um, very sort of exciting and exuberant in that way and you also have the fact that it's in a most beautiful situation with the mountains of Donegal behind it and the beaches and you know I think everybody who's from Derry no matter when they grew up there is marked by it it's it's a place that you feel insanely proud of even though it is quite hard to sometimes define that particularly when horrendous things happen in it like the shooting dead of Lyra McKee. As an outsider I often feel that people from Derry have a different kind of sisterhood and brotherhood that seems to be uh, much more marked than other places in Ireland. Am I making things up here or is... No, I think that's true, you know, because part of that, I think, is that Derry, we always had a certain pride in being the outsider in Derry. You know, it was always known that Belfast didn't favour Derry, you know, there still isn't even a proper road between Belfast and Derry. There's still very little investment in Derry. It's still the poor cousin and yet it's infinitely the more exciting and beautiful place, as I would say as a Derry girl. <laughs> but um, you know, so there's always been that sort of thing, the t- taking pride in being the outsider, you know, the less favoured place. And um, I think that that's that's part of what you're identifying. Side note on being a Derry girl, um, I definitely think Lisa uh, McGee's Derry Girls has educated certainly English people more about the situation in the North than their entire school curriculum probably has. How exciting has it been to have this massive global TV show being made about your your city? It's absolutely wonderful. It's amazing. And, you know, you can if you go to Derry now and you and strike up a conversation about Derry girls and you won't be able to avoid it, I can tell you. <laughs> People will recount entire episodes to you on the street. You know, uh, it's amazing. It's wonderful. And, and the series does really capture that whole sort of way in which you know when you're a teenager your hormones are what lead you and your taste in music is what leads you you know it's not necessarily being aware of of the awfulness of the politics around you and I think the series gets that really really well you know the fact that the bombs and so on are there but they're in the background they're not to the foreground of your your mind when you're a teenage girl on the rampage you Mm. know so um Derry Girls has been amazing and you know it's it's been it was awkward when Peter Casey came along and turned out <laughs> to be from Derry as well but you know he's he's pretty much uh, sidelined by now whereas Derry Girls are going from strength to strength. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of Derry people have shoved that one over to Donegal which is <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they can have them. <laughs> then let's talk about this uh post ceasefire generation that Lear was so um articulate about writing about and the fact that peace never came to a certain amount of people, either in their emotional interior through the mental health issues, and obviously she wrote so well about suicide um, in in the North, and that 
uh, how how we're we're told that this generation and this like socio political cultural landscape was going to be so different, yet it became almost purgatorial in parts of of the north. Yeah, I mean, there there are issues which apply to the whole of the North and there are issues which apply particularly to Derry. And it's just so tragic that Lyra didn't get a chance to really focus on Derry in her writing because she was going to be really articulate about it. She was already noticing stuff about it. And I firmly believe that she would have been standing that night in Cregan that she was killed looking at those young boys and thinking, do they not realise they're throwing their lives away you know that they think they're just throwing petrol bombs and they think it makes men of them but but it's not they're 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 wasting their lives and why are they doing that and she would have before long been investigating that she'd have been looking into it it was something that we talked about you know why did the dissident republicans have a grip in Derry which they didn't seem to have anywhere else and um it's it's absolutely awful that we've lost her voice on that. But suicide is a really big issue in Derry. Um, people who work on suicide are sensitive about talking about it because, you know, they don't want it to seem as if there's some sort of um, aura of suicide about Derry. But if you talk to people like, say, youth workers in particular in um, some of the more extremely disadvantaged parts of Derry, like Cregan, where where Lyra was killed and like Chantallo and those areas, there's a really, really high risk of, of young people having serious mental health problems and indeed of suicide. And um, you know, you can very easily see some of the reasons for that. Um, there's very little in Derry, even for very talented young people. You know, I, I know quite a lot of young people who are really brilliant in the artistic sector and they have to go away to work. You know, there there are projects in Derry, but very few of them are properly funded. Uh, very few of them can sustain any kind of meaningful level of employment for people. So people are still having to go away. And then if you're not particularly talented or you've had not had the advantage of a good education and lots of an education is woefully under underfunded in working class parts of the north in particular and in working class parts of Derry in particular, um, you're not going to have chances and there is a kind of hopelessness about and I think it's really quite frightening to think of what Derry is going to be like post-Brexit because it's so on the border, like its whole hinterland is in the Republic. It's surrounded by border checkpoints. Derry practically extends out to the border in a couple of places now. Um, I just think it's it's going to be devastated and it's not starting from a strong position. When did you first become aware of Lyra's work? I can't really remember um, when I came to know Lyra. I know that I met her because she came to a thing that I was speaking at and I thought she was completely charming and uh, it was really, really nice to, and sweet to meet her and you, you couldn't but be impressed by her enthusiasm for life and her enthusiasm for journalism. Um, but I think that the first time I became aware of her work was when I read um, a letter to my 14-year-old self and then subsequently um, saw the film of that, you know, because it's just so moving and it's it's so sad now to think back to it, you know, and her talking about, um, you know, life gets better for those of us who live long enough to see it get better. Um, it's a really brilliant piece of writing and I would say it's a life-saving piece of writing for quite a lot of people because um, 
she talks in it about the fact that she could herself have been a victim of suicide. She was in a state of total panic and anguish because she knew that her church didn't um, accept her sexuality and she knew that her sexuality was who she was and she went through years of of torment over that and um, so yeah that was the first piece of writing that I read of hers and I think that we then our friendship grew from there because we um, we began to talk much more about writing and things and she used to call me a legend <laughs> she'd say you're a legend and I called her Ms Shooting Star you know so we just had this kind of lovely um, friendship based around writing and obs- twin obsession with the North and in particular with the political history of the North When things kick off in a particular way um, in be it in Derry or Belfast or elsewhere in the North Often um, those incidents are reduced to little news briefs or maybe a video on the Irish Times or something on Twitter. Um, There is a ignorant disconnect um, in the Republic with regards to um, the politics and society in the North, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think people were obviously, you know, shaken into shock by her murder and the night she was killed, I remember looking at photos coming in from the um, from the disturbance or riot or whatever you want to call it from Niall Carson, the PA photographer who himself was shot um, in the leg during riots in Belfast in 2011. And like so many things, it kind of looked like these a cross between people hanging around and then a skirmish and then this escalation. What is your understanding of the, what was happening you know, me in the weeks before this thing kicked off in Craigan? Well, it's been clear for several years now that dissident Republicans have a foothold in Derry and in particular in Craigan and to some extent also in uh, Chantallo, um, which are both big um, working class areas which have the highest poverty statistics in the whole of the UK and quite possibly in Ireland as well though unfortunately there's very little comparative work on stats of that kind but um, essentially what is going on is a, is a falling out among Republicans uh, they resent uh, they reject the Good Friday Agreement they resent Sinn Féin for the fact that since or for their perception and there is obviously some truth to it is that Sinn Féin have kind of you know carved up a lot of stuff in Derry for themselves and they haven't really extended it beyond their own circles. So, for example, in the community sector and the youth sector and so on, there are a lot of positions which are full of Sinn Féin loyalists, uh, though that's kind of probably a a foolish word to use (laughs) given its other connotations. But um, so there's a disaffected group of of older Republicans there who were probably many of them were involved in the IRA, the provisional IRA in the past, but they didn't go with the peace process and the fact that the um, Good Friday Agreement is floundering uh, the fact that we don't have a government this past two years, the fact that a lot of you know people remember Martin McGuinness's speech when he resigned from government 
And, you know, Martin McGuinness, obviously, is a hero in Republican Derry. And, you know, when he talked about the, you know, the humiliation and the fact that uh, the DUP just wasn't willing to share power and so on, that really resonated in Derry. And it resonated with the dissidents because they saw it as an opportunity to really... um, get one up on Sinn Féin and sort of say, well, we told you so. This was never going to work. You can't trust the Brits. You can't trust unionists. We, you should have kept fighting until we had a united Ireland. So but you, so you've got a group of people who are old Republicans. Then you've got a younger group of people who have followed in the footsteps of Republican families. And then you've got a, young, a group of young people and the young people are the ones who were out throwing the petrol bombs and the fireworks that night that Lyra was killed. Um, it's still not clear whether the gunman was a, a young person or whether it was one of the, the older, more experienced people. But um, the the younger people would, as far as I can see, partly consist of young people who are radicalised and who do swallow all the old rhetoric about the, you know, the freedom struggle for Ireland and the, the yoke of British imperialism and all that old jazz. But um, they, some of the young people who come out and do those kind of riots are, are really messed up young people. You know, they're young people with drink problems. They're young people with drug problems. They're young people who may, in fact, have been the victims of punishment beatings in their time or even punishment shootings. And they're just kind of lost souls, you know. So it's a real rag bag of, of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, some of them very vulnerable young people who are being used clearly. And I suppose um, as dark and maybe irresponsible as this sounds, Mm. the vibrancy and excitement of a riot and fighting is probably not matched by an alternative. Well, I don't know if you've seen Sinead O'Shea's film, uh, Mother Brings Her Son to be Shot, but she interviews this young boy in that who talks about... um, how he wants the Troubles back. Like, he's obviously far too young to have even been alive during the Troubles, but he says he wants the Troubles back because he's bored. And, you know, there is a lot of boredom in a town where there's no employment, you know. And I also, myself, sometimes feel that I would I would love to see a lot of those murals which kind of are now shown to tourists as commemorations of the Troubles. But there's one particular one, you know, it's a brilliant mural and everything, but it's the one of a young boy wearing a World War II gas mask with a petrol bomb in his hand. And I just kind of think, don't we lose a bit of moral authority telling young people not to go out and riot when we're here with these murals kind of celebrating that as a a way of being a young man, you know? And it hasn't really been replaced, you know? there, There wasn't... Derry has very, very poor economic development compared with Belfast. And uh, one of the key indicators of that, I think, is, for example, the fact that the university still hasn't been developed properly in Derry. And the University of Ulster is currently investing 300 million in a big extension in Belfast. And it will be really good for Belfast. It will be really good for impoverished North Belfast. But I really think that the, the, there needs to be a bit more sharing out, mm. um, particularly given the, the vexed history of the university in Derry. It would make a huge difference. So Derry needs investment. It needs young people to be to have a different kind of future in front of them because then they won't 
get drawn into that that old nonsense of, of riots and throwing petrol bombs and things. I remember speaking to an artist in Derry who had at one stage had been tasked with perhaps reimagining visual language for the murals there and one of the main struggles was how anodyne and unexciting the visual language of peace symbolism is versus the symbolism of violence. You know, there's only so many doves and rainbows and mountains in the distance mm-hmm. you can paint compared to, as you described, that that very iconic mural of a kid with a petrol bomb. You know, it's dark, but if you're not building an alternative that is attractive to people, then that is obviously what some people are going to gravitate Well, at towards. least we're not as bad as Belfast where they've got nothing but George Best and the Titanic yeah. to, <laughs> to choose among. But actually, I, I was talking to a youth worker recently in Derry who um, uh, painted a Leonardo painting on a gable wall in a housing estate in Derry. You know, like, really, we have to stop being so limited in our ideas of yeah. what you can do. And there is a, there's a beautiful horse mural in Derry now. And, uh, you know, the, uh, if you look now in Cregan, there's murals which were done by local children uh, which use words from Lyra's writing, mm. you know, up in Cregan where the uh, new IRA so-called had put up their hideous unfinished revolution stuff. That's now been covered with very nice, brightly coloured um, pieces of writing from Lyra McKee's work, you know, and there, there's there's things like that that can be done. I think people just have to be a bit more imaginative. And also murals have always been very macho, you know, yeah. apart from the, the Bernadette uh, Devlin mural in Derry, um, which oddly enough I don't object to. Um, there's um, so many women who did th- great things in Derry who aren't noticed at all or, or commemorated in any way. So I think there's a much bigger range of images possible. Mm. In the immediate aftermath of um, the killing of, of Lyra McKee, it was obvious that this was a different moment, a new moment um, brought about by a great unfair tragedy. The reaction from people in the community, as you said, mm. even the painting over of that new IRA graffiti, the protests that her friends did, um, the stoic courage of her partner, Sarah, um, the global coverage, um, which oscillated between the tropes of which international jur- journal international journalism kind of paints um, Ireland as a whole, but also the fact that this was um, so intensely horrible. There was a feeling that maybe this will shift things, that this will change things. It can be very simplistic to think that one thing can, but often um, it can be a catalyst. Um, What have you seen uh, shifting in the aftermath of Lyra's death? And are things going to be different this time around? I mean, nobody has been... Um, nobody's locked up for for killing her. Yeah, well, I know that I was talking to to some people in in Cregan about that recently, and you know the police initially talked about how they had had an unprecedented response from the community, and I believe that to be true. You know, they got a lot of people giving them sort of mobile phone footage and and photographs and so on, but they haven't, it appears, yet got the hard evidence. And somebody said to me, well, you know, there's a £10,000 reward for hard information. And somebody said to me, £10,000 isn't going to relocate you and your entire family out of Derry. 
you know, and people are afraid. Like, I think the new IRA is a tiny organisation, but a tiny organisation made up of thugs can frighten a lot of people and can make life miserable for a lot of people. So, but in terms of change, I mean, obviously, as a troubles journalist, I've heard so many grieving families say, well, if my son or my daughter or my husband can be the last, then... I can somehow maybe come to terms with that eventually but and it hasn't really changed things but I think you know Lyra I certainly find since her death I find that she has been inspiring me a lot and I think that's the same for a lot of people who are kind of like-minded with Lyra you know you you feel that she was a force for good and you feel that that hasn't ended because she has tragically been taken away from us um, her writing is so powerful and she is really a very authentic voice for young working class millennials and she gives an insight into them that I haven't seen anybody else give and particularly young women and particularly young LGBTQ people you know it's a voice that we haven't heard because Northern Ireland is quite macho it's quite male dominated and you know unsurprisingly we're coming out of a period of armed patriarchy essentially but you know, you get a lot of writers who are quite macho and quite sort of into their who's brigadier of this and who's brigadier of that. And Lyra, I think, has influenced a lot of people to realise that there's there's a whole other way of looking at society. And I remember one particular thing that I've um, her friend uh, Tina Calder sent to me, a, a piece that she'd found online that Lyra wrote, where she talked about how people of her generation didn't really care so much anymore about whether you were unionist or nationalist Um, and there was in fact a poll recently which found that 50% of people now define themselves in the north as being neither unionist nor nationalist but she talked about how her friends were of all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of personal histories, all kinds of sexuality all kinds of colour and she said um I don't want a united Ireland. I don't want a stronger union. I just want a better life. And I think that's true for an awful lot of, of people in Northern Ireland. And I think that Lyra has been an inspiration to those people to keep on working in their own ways to, to make a better life. Susan McKay, thank you very much. Thanks. Sarah Canning, Lyra McKee's partner, is an amazing young woman and Lyra McKee was actually planning uh, their engagement at the time of her death, uh, which just adds another layer of very tragic circumstances uh, to what happened to a brilliantly talented young journalist. Sarah is going to speak with us in a minute alongside Sinead Quinn, uh, who is one of Lyra's friends, and also one of the young women you may have seen at uh, the protest uh, that they did in the aftermath of Lyra's death, uh, where they painted their hands red and imprinted them on a building that was of significance to dissident Republicans in Derry in an extraordinarily brave show of strength. So we're going to talk to them now about Lyra and about what happened that night and what happens next. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk uh, with us. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. Um, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, where did you grow up? What were you up to when you were a kid and a teenager? Okay, okay. Um, I grew up in Derry. Um, I moved to just near the Bogside when I was six years old. Um, and as a kid and a teenager, I 
I grew up during kind of a, a fairly active period of the Troubles, particularly in Derry. Um, and I was quite close to the epicentre of a lot of the events. So, I mean, I had a relatively normal childhood, if you forget about the bombs and the, the, the shootings and things that happened in, in the vicinity. Um, I played with my friends, went to school, had the normal pressures of a teenager and a, a youngster growing up. When you um, look back on your childhood now, it's always so difficult to have any perspective because it's only ever your norm wherever anyone grows up. But can you have a perspective on maybe the impact of your environment, how it created maybe resilience or formed certain emotional attributes of yourself and your peers? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I mean, one thing that I would say for a lot of people my age, and I know it's true across Ireland and across the world, there are a lot of mental health issues. Um, a lot of us did grow up, as I said, you know, you're you're, you're in the cold face of the violence. Um, some of us have seen people being shot dead. Some of us have been in close proximity to bombs. Some of us that have family members who've gone to jail for their activities. Some of us have had family members who've been murdered by the state. Some of us had family members who were murdered by paramilitaries. Um, and that all has an effect. Um, a lot of us are quite resilient um, we're very good at closing ourselves off and com- compartmentalizing our feelings, and I know that's definitely something that that I can can relate to. Um, because when, I think when you when you grow up with it and it is your norm, you learn to kind of switch off from the more like um, I'm trying to think of a word more severe things that happen in your life. You know, you, you've experienced a lot of quite traumatic events already. What's another one? <laughs> Yeah. You know, anytime I go up to Derry or Belfast, for example, like to do talks or attend talks or things like that, one thing that always strikes me is the level of discourse is much richer. Um, people are more engaged maybe than they would be in Dublin or other parts of Ireland, that the level of um, political engagement is just so much more urgent and real and the vocabulary and philosophical underpinnings and understandings people have of their context and of bigger ideas seem more pronounced to me. Is that a a, a very ridiculous outsider perspective or is that something that you can No, I think, to? I think it's really accurate. Um, and I think what it boils down to is like as a, as a big Nordy here, I look at the discourse in the Republic and, you know, you have people coming out in support of Siru and, and other dissident groups like that. And that, what they don't realise is that, you know, it's our life here in the North. It actually affects us on a real level. And, and as, you, as you know from my story, it's affected me on an incredibly personal level. Um, we have to have a richer discourse and we, we have to be more entrenched in the philosophies because it actually affects us day to day. It's not just an ideology, it's actual real life. That's that's so well put. And in talking about this, obviously, um, and I'm very grateful for you to, to talking to me today. Um, you know, the thing where this episode is about Derry and it is about um, Lyra and it is about, you know, what happens next. And I want to talk uh, initially about where and when yourself and, and Lyra met and how your relationship formed. Okay. Um, so Lyra and I, are did the, we, we did things the very millennial way. We met on Plenty of Fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the first message, it was pretty much 
an instant mental attraction anyway. Um, I realized who she was after about three messages because obviously, you know, letter to my 14-year-old self had gone viral. Yeah. Um, she was quite, a well, she was, she was getting very well known. And I remember like reading a couple of her pieces and seeing her byline and thinking she was really cute and being really like impressed that she was such a young journalist from Northern Ireland. She was out and proud and um, she wrote so well, like her, her, just the way that she wrote was fantastic. Um, so that sort of really impacted me. Um, and she was kind of embarrassed that I had realized who she was. <laughs> um, so we started chatting on the 18th of March. I was lying in a very hungover state with curry in my hair when the message came through. And we met up on the 25th of March for the first time. Um, and what were your first impressions of her then IRL? Oh, she was, like, when she came walking towards me, I kind of got, like, you know, the, the butterflies. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh my goodness, that is her. Um, she looked fantastic. She was really well turned out, and I felt like a bag lady beside her. <laughs> um, and from the from the get-go, the, the conversation started, and it didn't stop, and we didn't want it to stop. And that kind of was the, the next year and a bit. <laughs> the conversation didn't stop. You know, we always had something to talk about. She taught me so, so much about about Northern Ireland and about politics in general and, and so many different things because she was, you know, you looked at her and a lot of people thought that she was this young, naive, nerdy person um, and she, she looked very, very young for her age, but she had such a depth of knowledge and such a really great way of imparting that knowledge. Um, you can really tell that. I mean, I can certainly tell that in, in her pieces over the years, that depth that you talk about and... You know, again, that bigger idea piece, you know, that this isn't something um, that like the subject matter wasn't superficial that she was writing about. It had this underpinning of, of so much more. Sinead Quinn, um, you're you're on the line as well. Um, a friend, a friend of Lear's in terms of her, her work and her conversational ability and the stuff she was interested in. What kind of stuff would you guys be chatting about? Um, we've always kind of been quite well, as friends, uh, even as a person myself, very interested in politics here. And when I say politics, it's not the usual orange and green. Um, for the last good while here, there's been a, a good shift towards leftist politics in the North. Um, and to be honest, that's kind of, I suppose, my interest. Um, but also a very, I have a very heavy interest in victims' issues, um, the intergenerational trauma that people are experiencing here. Um, and... When I first met Lyra, like Sarah, I knew who she was because I'd read her article about um, ceasefire babies and suicide. Um, and when she was introduced, the first day I looked at her, I thought, oh, God, no, that can't be the same one. And the next day I met her, I asked her and very, very humbly, she went, yeah, that's me. And I was just blown away um, because the things that Lyra was writing about really are so significant for our... I mean, I'm, I'm a good bit older than Lyra and Sarah. I'm 30, well, slightly older than Sarah. Um, I'm 37. So, I mean, for, for reading it coming from somebody younger than me, I was just like, wow, she's hit the nail on the head with this article. Um, and in fact, I'd been sharing it and telling people to read it the full year before I'd even met Lyra. So... Um, it was it was quite a shock to meet the person who wrote this and to be able to sit there and unpack things with her and have conversations with her about different things that she's researched and people that she'd met. I mean, 
it, it was like a spotlight program every time I sat down with Lyra. It was really awful because she never she never got a chance just to be because I was just like me and a few other the girls were like, right, so what about this? What do you think really happened here? And what's your opinion about this? Because we we knew the depth of her knowledge. We knew how unbelievably wise she was. Um, and even though she's one of the youngest in the group, we really would have took our leave from Lyra when it came to that kind of stuff because she was an expert. She was an absolute expert in her field. Um, and just, she was amazing. Um, very, very quiet at the beginning um, until she found her feet. And when she found her feet, oh my God, um, <laughs> she, she was just amazing. That's the only word I can use for You know, for some people, work isn't as integral uh, to their lives and, and how they live. But I think for a certain, a certain breed of journalists, it really is, you know, and I think a lot of journalists um, will identify with the vocational pull that Lyra appeared to feel towards the profession, towards the finding out and the truth um, and and explaining and distilling complexities. Um, can you talk about how much her work was was part of her life and her, her purpose? I know that you're saying there, you know, everybody has one of those mates where when you turn up to the pub, you're just like, tell me everything, feed me all of your information. <laughs> Um, but the, this passion and vocational um, drive uh, is 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 common in some ways in in journalism, but it's also rare within that tribe as well. Um, it was an absolutely enormous part of Lyra's life. Um, vocation is definitely the word. You know, she like et slept slept and breathed journalism. Um, she was always interested in finding out more. She always, um, I mean. One of the funny things is my when when Lear and I met, my dad was um, terminally ill, and it was in his last couple of months. And when I introduced him to Lyra, he was kind of when I told him about her, he was a bit blown away. And when I introduced him, I was kind of worried because he grabbed her by the hand and he said, "I've got a question for you." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh God, what's this going to be?" And he said, "Dennis Donaldson, I've never understood it. There's more answers out there." And and I, I think you might be a woman that knows some of them. And she was like, oh, my God, I've always had questions about that, too. So for the next probably eight weeks, up until about two weeks before my dad died, when he lost all interest in everything, Lyra found out more and more information about the Donaldson case that maybe hadn't been published and went and spoke to people who were the last people to see him alive and people who had different bits of information. And that was just a sideline to her, to her normal job. She was just doing it because it made my daddy happy. And it was still work because she was so interested and she really wanted to write about the Donaldson case. Um, but it was also just what she did as a person. Hmm. It's no surprise then that at times of um, complexity where the politics and the social landscape collides on the street that Lyra would have been there on the ground. Um, I know it's incredibly difficult to talk about the events of, of April 18th this year, but perhaps if you have, um, you don't need to go into details, but perhaps if you have anything that you want to say about your own memories there, although I'm sure a lot has been blocked out as well through trauma, um, what would you say about uh, that night and, and the subsequent days? Well, that night we had we we were all kind of some some of us were together some of us were separate so Lyra and I had to come home and um we were chilling out in bed and the picture started coming through on Facebook of the rioting and then we got a message to say that Sinead was going up 
Um, and Lyra was like, oh my God, do you think she'll come and get us? And she then put a message on the group saying, if anybody wants to go, you know, mess it, ring me and, and let me know. So we rang because Lyra was like, I, I want to go up. I haven't seen a riot in forever. I and mean, she was very young when the troubles ended in Belfast and was always kept kind of sheltered from it. So um, I mean, I've seen more riots than I can count. Um, I wasn't, you know, it was one of those things. It's just a riot, kind of. It, it's that weird, naughty mentality that we have that it's just a riot. It's fine. So um, we went up and it was just like any other any other night. You know, we stood well back from the, from the actual rioters. We were quite far up the street. We were surrounded by other people. Um, and we were kind of all doing it. Like Sinead was chatting to people. I was standing beside Lyra. She was in full-on reporter mode. I, to my mind, I think she saw an angle with it because the rioters were mostly young. Um, and it all goes back into her um, her writing about the dividends of peace that never trickled down. Mm. And I think she saw an angle with that because they were such young rioters. We were in an area of such social deprivation. Um, and Lyra just saw, you know, especially when it was related to anything troubles mm. she always saw an angle whether it was for her or for someone else you know um so she was taking pictures and she was sending messages and you know um i don't know what was in them um i didn't i didn't look at her phone after anything happened the only thing that we used it for was to get numbers from um but yeah i mean she she went on the fall on reporter mode you know she kind of I don't know, disappeared nearly, didn't she? You know, it was, it was, her phone was her focus. And like, I, I made her move a couple of times. You know, we, we moved to different, different spots just to make sure that we were further away from, from what we thought was the danger. Mm. Um, and obviously some, somebody saw fit to, bring an even bigger danger onto the street. One of the, one of the, um, I, su I suppose bizarre things that I felt, uh, as as the information was coming through of, like you said, Sarah, you know, riots are commonplace in many parts in the north. There have been. Yeah. And this idea that somebody would bring a gun into yeah. this scenario, yeah. um, even in a really superficial kind of way, is, is felt oddly chaotic and unprofessional or something. I don't even know how you could describe it. We talked about that just after because we'd said even in the, the riots and there were some serious, serious riots where someone had been um, run over and killed by um, a British army vehicle in the early 90s pre-ceasefire here in the town. Um, and even at those riots, there was no guns. And that was the thing that, you know, really early on had us all. And that's why we were there because we never expected anyone to bring a gun to a riot. Um, it's not something that's happened here in the city historically in terms of our remit, you know, in terms of our lifetimes. Um, and you just, you'd never expect it. Never, ever have no. expected it. Um, and it seemed to be quite, I mean, in terms of rioting previously, quite a low-key thing. Mm. There was vehicles being burned, yes, but it was quite contained. It was mm. in, in quite a small area. And there weren't and that many of them. No. In, in, in real terms, like I've seen riots where it's been like running battles on the streets. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and there's been hundreds involved. Mm. Um, this seemed minor to me mm. like that. I really wasn't, stupidly wasn't worried. No. But I mean, by the same token, there were people standing behind us with their, their small children. Yeah. 
you know, there were people holding infants. Wow. Nobody saw it as as a danger. Yeah. You know, and now we know um with with hindsight, like that there there are reasons that it happened. Yeah. We think that it was a show of strength, um, because MTV were filming um in the area that for that week they were talking with this, the dissidents who um, perpetrated Lear's murder. And well, it feels as though, you know, that this the consensus is kind of that it was probably a show of strength to show that this, you know, they were reporting on Brexit and the effect that it was having on border areas. And these uh, big tough guys decided to show them exactly what impact Brexit was having. Brexit wasn't having that impact on us before. No. They created that impact. It was nothing to do with Brexit. One of the most um, incredible things I've seen in recent years um, besides uh, that speech that you made, Sarah, at the um, memorial gathering in the immediate aftermath of Lyra's death was the protest of, of red hands on a building um, housing these forces perceived as responsible for her death. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, first of all, like the um, display of collective resolve and um, courage in the aftermath of such horrific recklessness is something that I think a lot of people took solace from of actually how to hold yourself in in a space when something cuts the feet from under you. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I I've I found it hard to to understand how you guys could have been so strong in that aftermath and what was driving your decision to instead of retreating into the shadows as is the intention of people who are trying to cut people down that you basically emerge as this collective um group that weren't going to be shoved aside i'm I'm wondering what was the drive around that and and what kind of conversations were you having in and around those um the the days after the drive for us was our love for lira and sarah um and our love for our city um, immediately um, after Lyra was shot, I remember um, putting a post on Facebook that I hated Derry and I was ashamed to be from Derry. Um, and the next day we came to the scene to leave some flowers and there was a beautiful slate heart that said, um, hashtag not in our name, um, RIP Lyra McKay, um, with love from the people of Derry. And, and that changed my mindset quickly and remembered what kind of people Derry people were. And to be honest, the protest... It, it, it came about we didn't organize it someone else had organized it we felt very strongly that if somebody was going to do this it needed to be done in a way that that was respectful of Lyra's memory that it didn't descend into chaos and, and we very much felt that it needed to be symbolic um so one of our friends Kathleen decided that it would be red handprints um and we we basically just decided there and then that was that we owed it to Sarah Sarah was in Belfast at this stage um and we were in Derry and we knew that we needed to do something. There needed to be a message sent. Um, and it was it literally was our love for both Sarah and Lear that, that spurred us on. Um, we did, um, when we were coming down to do it, we got a phone call, uh, just a heads up from a journalist to say that Siri were in their offices, they were open for business. And we just said, that's grand. We're not afraid. We'll see you in five minutes. Um, because these people have grown up in the same streets that we've grown up in. Um, now, we're not stupid enough to think that, you know, we, we've seen what they can do with a gun. We get that. But by the same token, in that moment, 
it was just fire in our bellies and it was just saying, no, you know what, you've done your worst, you've murdered our friend, you've taken everything from us and we're not afraid anymore. And it was just that impact, that instant gut feeling and the impact that it had afterwards that just kept us going. We didn't realise at the time, to be honest with you, I don't think even what we were doing or how it was going to be received or any of that. It was just something that we did, and that's how we felt about it. Um, and it still kind of stuns us a wee bit when people say to us <laughs> about it, because in the in that space of that week, there was so much that happened, you know, that it's it's difficult to get your head around. In the immediate aftermath as well, like along with that protest, along with your words, Sarah, along with the outpouring from people in the city of Derry, around the country and indeed around the world, there was this type of um, sentiment that, you know, although it may sound trite, you know, this time it's different, that things will shift. Has that been true for you guys? Have things um, shifted in, in Derry? And was that reaction um, different to to other uh, tragedies that have occurred? I think the reaction was definitely different. It was huge. Um, uh, Lyra was very well known. Um, even in Derry and uh, in the short time that she had lived in Derry, you know, she had already found sources for her book and she was down interviewing people um, and she spoke to people from all, all sections of the community. There was there was never any, you know, Lyra didn't view based on your politics. Um, it was whether or not you were a good person. Um, so the reaction was, was huge. And to be honest, I, I am massively grateful to the people of Derry who came out and supported us. In, in anything that we've done, who the people who stepped forward and gave footage and names and photographs and statements to the police, because, I mean, people kind of, I think, tend to forget when things are quiet up here. It kind of seems like we still, we have peace. But I mean, there are communities who are terrorised and that's on both sides. It's not just a Republican problem, it's a loyalist problem as well. You know, your streets aren't always your streets. Sometimes they're someone else's and they, they try to decide what goes on and what happens. And and very much the, the people in that area, Craigan, are you know dealing with their own problems with dissidents. And it's a very, very scary thing to have to live in an area when you've gone and spoken to the police about something like that. Um, so I have massive respect and gratitude to them. Um, do I think it's going to change anything politically? That's hard to tell. Um all the politicians have been making the right noises towards me. You know, um, I've had conversations with everyone from Mary Lou MacDonald right the way through to Arlene Foster and, and you know, people in between, Claire Bailey and, you know, and, and, and some people are, are better than others um, in terms of just their engagement and, and their grasp on reality and the reality that their constituents live in. Mm. You know, I think that that's a problem. Some of our politicians just seem very removed from their constituents and from the lives that they're leading. Yeah. The degree to which um, people in the North have been let down uh, by not just by individual politicians and parties, but by an entire system and also by Westminster is yeah. profound, you know. Um, and I feel very helpless in, in this, even when I'm speaking to friends of mine who live in Belfast, for example, and it's just like, I don't know what you guys are going to do. You know, what can we do about this? Um, how have those conversations with political leaders been in terms of perhaps giving you something solid or really getting the gravity of how um, they are, are, you know, just 
abdicating responsibility in, in, in so many ways with regards to um, making a place functional. Yeah. Um, honestly, they pay you lip service. And, and that's, you know, I'm not going to say it's across the board, but particularly for our big two, um, which would be Sinn Féin and the DUP, unfortunately, it's lip service. Um, when you look towards Westminster, I mean, I spoke to Theresa May and I spoke to Karen Bradley and I laid it on the line for them that, you know, we aren't a devolved state at this moment in time. We need to be governed by Westminster and and, and the Doyle needs to step up as well. You know, it actually, it, it's there's an undergovernmental system here and both sides really need to come together and actually like step it up a notch. You know, we've been left in limbo now for two years. It's ridiculous. And in those two years, what we've seen is that the rest, well, even before the two years, but like the rest of the UK is five years ahead of us in terms of equal marriage and 50 years ahead of us in terms of women's bodily autonomy. Holy Catholic Ireland, who no one would ever have believed, has now legalised same-sex marriage and has abortion provision. And we're still languishing here in the North. We have nothing. You know, and it's it's ridiculous that we're being we're being allowed to languish and very little's being done about it, very little's being said about it. The talks dissolve at every turn. And we're sick to the back teeth of hearing all oh, the talks have broken down again. It's like you're being paid to do your job, sit down like adults and do it. Or come back to your constituents, ask them exactly what they want to see, what issues are important to them, and legislate for them. Well said indeed. Who do you hold responsible for her murder? Um, well, I mean, the new IRA have claimed responsibility, so obviously them. Um, Siri claimed that they're nothing to do with the new IRA. I don't believe that, but obviously I can't prove that. Um, that'll come out in the wash. Um, but certainly, you know, they were the people who were involved in the documentary that was being made. They were the people who took Reggie Yates up to, to watch the riot. So to my mind, you know, the responsibility lies at the feet of the person who, who pulled the trigger, but equally the person who put that gun in that person's hand. You know, and I can't I can't say that it's it's because Stormont devolved or, or, or Stormont dissolved or, or anything else. Really interestingly, that's it's part of the, the bigger picture, but it's not the cause. Um so yeah, I mean it's you, you get really broad and look at lots of different factors and put them all in. But essentially it boils down to someone made that choice. They put a gun in their hand and they pulled the trigger and they pulled it towards a crowd. I mean, the reality is we're all very extremely angry and frustrated with the lack of government, but not everybody loves a gun. And I think that's the bottom line. Um, we know there's ways of protesting, there's ways of getting our message across that don't involve shooting another human being. And and that's where the political discourse needs to be. You know, in Northern Ireland, we need our leaders to step up and actually say to people, here's a route for protest, here's a route. Together, people together from all walks of life. That's what's missing. We need the leadership. Um, we need we need parties to be stronger. We need political um, leaders to be brighter, um, mm -hmm. to, to be more personable. They actually get down to our level and say, right, what is it we need to do to get this to work? Because there's loads of different, there's loads. I mean, this council election, we've seen new parties elected that would be quite leftist. What are they doing? We know your hearts are in the right places. We know that you have the best arguments. But what are you doing to bring the people together? Do we get a resolution here? Because we know government is not the, re the resolution we're looking for. These are questions that we're going to 
continue to have to talk about and continue to pu push for social change and creating livable places for people where, um, you know, disadvantage and disruption are not part of people's upbringings and that something like this never happens again. Sarah Canning and Sinead Quinn, you have my endless respect and solidarity. Um, thank you so much um, for, for, for talking so honestly and bravely and hopefully we can hang out soon and, and chat more. Because I love Don't Stop Repealing. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank Take you. care, guys. All the best. My fave bits this week are two talks that I'm doing. Pluggy, pluggy, down at Galway International Arts Festival. It's a festival I love going to every summer. Always really good fun, brilliant visual art, theatre, gigs, comedy and talks. And I'll be talking at two of these things. The first one is on the 20th of July, 3.30pm. It's at NUI Galway. And the title of it is What Does Being Transgender Mean? This is going to be a talk about trans identities and rights. And the panel includes Dr. Lydia Foy, the person who won the legal right to have her birth certificate reflect her chosen gender, Ailish Barry of Flack, who took that case, and Lou Saborio Velasquez, who is a trans non-binary Honduran artist based in Dublin. That's going to be super interesting. The second talk is a week later on July 27th at 11.30 a.m., also at NUI Galway. And that it talk is about how is hashtag Me Too doing now? We're going to be talking about the Me Too movement and also the Me Too movement specific to Ireland and whether or not it resonates here as strongly as it has elsewhere. I think it does. And we've got plenty to talk about at that event that is going to include myself and Cathy Sheridan and Grace Dias. So those are my fave bits. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media, helped along by Susie Bennett. Thanks to Crystal Clear for our music, Sarah Fox for our design and you for listening. You can find links to all of our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. You can tell that I'm used to Andrea doing this bit. And if you've enjoyed listening, let us know. Tweet us, chuck us a DM, tell us what you want to hear, what other counties we should be covering. Obviously all of them, but maybe some are more urgent than others. But even better than that, give us some of your cash on our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Shout out to all the people who are supporting us today. Thank you so much. This week's tuna chicken roll has a dairy flavour by one of the finest young artists in the country, in my opinion. It's Dairy Woman Soak and everybody loves you. I've been Una Mullally. This has been United Ireland and that was Derry. Everybody wants you, not me today, because I'm done.